You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When President Teddy Roosevelt signed the Pure Food and Drug Act into law in 1906, manufacturers of foods, beverages, and drugs had to scramble to remove ingredients the government just banned and update their labeling. The law hampered sales of Coca-Cola and many other sodas, but it gave Dr. Pepper an advantage because they didn't use caffeine or cocaine. Seeing their chief rival taking a hit must have emboldened Dr. Pepper because they tried to push for a law that would cripple every other soda on the market. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Dating back at least to the 1700s, People of Europe drank natural mineral water believed to cure a variety of illnesses like gallstones and scurvy. Even bathing from these natural springs was seen as therapeutic. People literally went for the waters, though that phrase is only hanging on by its fingernails through the expression, I'm not here for the waters, usually said of some place you don't want to be, like work. Many people tried to sell the water off-site, But packaging and transportation at the time were prohibitively difficult and expensive, so they went with the next best thing. They'd manufacture their own water. Fine, I'll make my own mineral water, with blackjack and hookers. Most of y'all are confused, but one person just snorted coffee through their nose. Mark my words. In 1767, British chemist Joseph Priestley tried carbonating water as you would beer by fermentation with yeast. The results were weak, but they worked. In 1772, he published a paper entitled Impregnating Water with Fixed Air. Priestley's apparatus, which featured a bladder between the generator and the absorption tank to regulate the flow of carbon dioxide, was soon joined by a wide range of variants. However, it wasn't until 1781 that carbonated water could be produced on a large enough scale, with the establishment of companies specializing in producing artificial mineral water. Others improved on Priestley's work, and while he did get respect from the scientific community, he didn't make anything for the invention that made possible a $400 billion a year industry. American inventor John Matthews designed a soda fountain that could produce enough carbonated water for all of his customers all day in 1832, leading to the opening of the first soda fountain. In their heyday, soda fountains were elaborately decorated places for rejuvenation, more like a walk-through health retreat than a snack counter, and they were usually found in pharmacies. Pharmacists already used sweet-tasting flavor syrups like lemon-lime to mask the taste of bitter medicines like quinine and iron, liquid medicine being the standard form at the time rather than pills. Add some sparkling water, and you've got something new on your hands. Sarsaparilla, for example, was used to treat syphilis, supposedly, and phosphoric acid, an ingredient in most colas, was thought to help with hypertension. The oldest major soft drink in America, Dr. Pepper, was created by pharmacist Charles Alderton in 1885 and marketed as an energy drink and brain tonic. 
Soda, the effervescent new patent medicine. We might be frustrated by how long it takes a new medication to get to the market, or top of mind, a new vaccine, but it beats the old way of doing things, at least from the consumer side. From the manufacturer's side, the late 19th century, the era of the patent medicine, was the best time to be alive. You could put anything you wanted in a bottle and call it medicine. You could still go around calling yourself doctor without having to prove it. Mix up some tap water with whatever's handy, something bitter to make it taste like medicine, and then something sweet so it's not too bitter, and of course, if you can, booze and hard drugs. Have pretty labels printed with filigree and vague, sometimes contradictory claims, and watch the money roll in. Behold the age of the patent medicine. Patent medicines are named after the letters patent, probably letters patent, since it was granted by the English crown. The first letters patent given to an inventor of a secret remedy was issued in the late 17th century. The patent granted the medicine maker a monopoly on his particular formula. The term patent medicine came to describe all prepackaged medicines sold over the counter without a doctor's prescription. Early English patent medicines sold like Jordans in the colonies, like Dicey's Dr. Bateman's Drops, whose original patent was granted by King George I in 1726 and was still available into the 20th century. Not about to let the Brits make off with all the lucre, America began to cultivate their own patent medicines, an industry that boomed in the decades leading up to the Civil War. In the U.S., very few patent medicines actually had a patent. You could get yourself a bottle of Hostetter's Celebrated Stomach Bitters, Ferrochina de Anglis, Calisea Bark and Iron Tonic, Roach's Embrocation, Emerson's Rheumatic Cure, Brooks's Barefoot Ointment, S.B. Goff's Magic Oil Liniment, or something just called Salvation Oil. Patent medicine actually played its own small part in the war. The government taxed their sale, along with the sales of matches, playing cards, perfumes at Al, to fund the war effort and repay military debt. Just like cigarettes today, patent medicines had to have a tax stamp on them for decades. Thirty years after the Civil War, the government returned to patent medicine taxation to fund the Spanish-American War, which ran from 1898 to 1902, using a distinctive battleship stamp. The second half of the 19th century, with the rapid growth of industrialization and populations in American cities, was a high point for such hokum. Literacy was also improving, which meant that there were more magazines and newspapers for patent medicine makers to advertise in, and more people who could actually read the ads. There was also a pervasive and widespread distrust for medicine of the day. This was the era of heroic medicine, where doctors went to extremes like bloodletting and purgatives to cure disease. We know now that making an already sick person poop their brains out or cutting them with a blade that you didn't know you needed to wash between patients is a bad idea, but back then it was, no pun intended, cutting edge stuff. It was also fatal a lot of the time. Many patients treated with heroic medicine would have been better off on their own, lying in bed and perhaps dipping into a bottle of Dr. Morse's Indian root pills. People were drawn to patent medicine in a desperate bid to avoid real doctors. The marketing of patent medicine was every bit as important as marketing of products is now. Marketers developed distinct trademarks, eye-catching packages, and clever ad campaigns. 
They were among the first businessmen to try angles like junk mailers, free samples, promotional tchotchkes, national newspaper campaigns, outdoor signage, and testimonials. You know who else has testimonials? Podcasters. This review comes from Multiverse Bracketologist, who says, So I heard you like facts. Well, they don't get presented in a better venue than this one. Moxie delivers each episode eloquently and with a touch of humor that everyone can appreciate. She often includes experts for short segments on the show that are always insightful and informative. I'd recommend this show for anyone that wants to discover and learn about something new every week. Thank you, Multiverse Bracketologist. And if you would like to hear your opinion read on the show, drop a review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app you're using right now. Patent medicine men even published their own version of the Farmer's Almanac, with handy information about weather and crops and animals, and of course, lots and lots of their ads. And the things they would write in those ads. Swaim's panacea purportedly cured all blood diseases, including scrofula, chronic rheumatism, ulcers, old sores, boils, and carbuncles, diseases of the spines, and wasting. Smedley's chili paste cured sciatica, rheumatism, sore throat, lumbago, gouty pains, and bronchitis, among other things. Hall's cocoa wine was invaluable for cases of influenza, sleeplessness, anemia, and mental fatigue. And Lydia Pinkham's vegetable compound seems to be able to cure women of anything, not just female troubles. Apparently, it was a cure-all, but only for half of the population. I've got to read you one of their ads. Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound is a positive cure for all those painful complaints and weaknesses so common to our best female population. It will cure entirely the worst form of female complaints, all ovarian troubles, inflammation, and ulceration, fallings and displacements, and the consequent spinal weakness, and is particularly adapted to the change of life. It will dissolve and expel tumors from the uterus in an early stage of development, the tendency to cancerous humors there is checked very speedily by its use. It removes faintness, flatulency, destroys all craving for stimulants, and relieves weakness of the stomach. It cures bloating, headaches, nervous prostration, general debility, sleeplessness, depression, and indigestion. That feeling of bearing down, causing pain, weight, and backache is always permanently cured by its use. It will at all times and under all circumstances act in harmony with the laws that govern the female system. For the cure of kidney complaints of either sex, this compound is unsurpassed. It goes on to also plug, No family should be without Lydia E. Pinkham's liver pills. They cure constipation, biliousness, and torpidity of the liver. Good stuff. So what was in these bottles of snake oil? Very rarely oil of snake, which is hard to source. Ingredients ranged from benign but unhelpful, like tincture of mallow root, to downright dangerous. Many patent medicines contained significant levels of alcohol, opium, morphine, cocaine, basically anything that would make the end user feel good so they'd think it was working. The fact that many of these medicines were made with highly addictive drugs was probably good for repeat business as well. While patent medicines were hot sellers, they weren't without their detractors. In 1905 and 1906, Collier's Magazine ran a series of influential articles by Samuel Hopkins Adams entitled The Great American Fraud, which exposed many of the deceitful and unsafe methods practiced by patent medicine manufacturers. 
Exposés like these and other grassroots efforts helped bring about the first Federal Food and Drug Act in 1906. Now, drug labeling had to include a list of ingredients. Not all of them, just certain concerning things like heroin, chloroform, cannabis, and, of course, alcohol. And manufacturers were prohibited from making unproven and unprovable claims. Cocaine wouldn't be banned from freely available patent medicines until 1909. The classic sodas we know and love today got their start as patent medicines. Before we address the two soda elephants in the room, the brands so big that apparently they had a war in the 1980s, which I was less aware of than our impending war with Russia, which never came to pass but did give us a glut of heavily accented movie villains. But first, let's talk about an old-school medicinal tonic turned beverage with a familiar name, courtesy of my friend Nick from the Fantastic History of Food. Today, I'll be telling you all about an incredibly popular soft drink that started its life being marketed as a medicine. I stumbled upon this story in my research for this segment and instantly knew this was the one. My friend and host of this very show, Moxie Labouche, gets her lively first name from this particular product. In 1876, a man by the name of Augustine Thompson submitted a patent in Lowell, Massachusetts for a new medicine that he was calling Moxie Nerve Food. Thompson claimed that it contained an extract from a rare South American plant that we now know as gentian root. He claimed that his drink Moxie was especially effective against paralysis, softening of the brain, nervousness and insomnia. He started a factory to mass-produce the medicinal drink, and his company began churning out vast and varied stories about the origin of the name Moxie. Thompson himself is recorded as saying that he named the beverage after an old friend of his, a Lieutenant Moxie, who he said had originally discovered the plant and had used it on himself as a remedy for his ailments. However, historians now believe that the most likely derivation of the word comes from an old Native American word meaning dark water. This theory makes sense, as it was also a word commonly used in the area where Thompson was born and raised. After a few years of marketing it as a medicine, Thompson sought to expand its reach. He began adding soda water to the formula, and in a show of his marketing genius, he changed the name from Moxie Nerve Food to Moxie Nerve Food Beverage. By 1884, he was selling Moxie in bottles, touting it now as possibly the world's first energy drink. He also began providing it in a syrup form for restaurants to put into their soda fountains. A year later, he applied for and received a trademark for the name Moxie, and began marketing it as a delicious blend of bitter and sweet, a drink to satisfy everyone's taste. There are records of Moxie having been a known favourite of none other than President Calvin Coolidge, who was said to have always kept some near at hand. Ted Williams, the Boston Red Sox heavy hitter, became a spokesman for the brand, endorsing it on radio and in print magazines in what would come to be known as Moxie's heyday. Moxie was on the rise and began to build its reputation as a drink that revitalized the consumer, bringing a spark and an energy back to the body. It became popular with athletes and laborers who swore by its ability to keep them going even after a hard day's work. It became so widely known that by the late 1920s, the term moxie had become a form of shorthand slang for someone who possessed courage, character and determination. 
Sadly, the company's fortunes didn't last long as sales began to take a sharp decline during the 1930s, and soon the drink began to fade from the public consciousness. By all accounts, even today, the bitterness of the soda drink is what turns many people off. It has been described as very much an acquired taste, as well as black licorice medicine water, neither of which fill me with excitement at the thought of consuming this beverage. Moxie soda is still produced to this day, having been passed from one company to another for decades. In 2018, the recipe and the company as a whole was bought by the Coca-Cola Corporation. Moxie is now only sold in the six states that comprise New England, and most predominantly of these in the state of Maine, which Dr. Thompson once called home. It was here in Maine in 2005 that Moxie was named the official state drink. So, if you ever happen to be in the northeast of the United States, keep your eyes peeled for the bright orange cans of Moxie that you might just be lucky enough to find. Special thanks to the Your Brain on Facts podcast for having me on, and to Moxie herself, a woman with just as much fizz as her namesake. I'm Nick Charlie Key, and if you'd like to hear more fun and bizarre stories just like this one, I'd love for you to subscribe to my podcast, The Fantastic History of Food. Recent episodes include The Man Who Ate King Louis XIV's Heart, as well as the story of how pirates and witches played a part in the broader discovery of hot chocolate. You can find out more about the show at foodhistorypod.com, as well as on Twitter at foodhistorypod. For now, allow me to play you out with a snippet from an early jingle for Moxie Soda, played by none other than Mr. Arthur Fields. Moxie, oh Moxie, me for you. I don't know what I could do without you. As a drink, you're a hummer in winter or summer. There's something so pleasant about you. Oh, you stand the test, for you are the best. I'll send all the rest down the line. Let others keep trying, you're so satisfying. There's nothing like Moxie for mine. Thanks, Nick, for helping with the show. And thanks also to our newest supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, Paul, Vladislav, Charles, and Jonathan, for helping me to cover the very real costs of putting on the podcast, as well as to Eden and Jennifer, who recently increased their pledges. Don't forget, for the duration, until life settles down a little bit, all tiers of membership are receiving all perks, including the latest episode of the Patreon-exclusive Spot the Lie. In 1893, Caleb Bradham, a pharmacist who had had to quit medical school to support his family, mixed up carbonated water, lemon oil, and vanilla with some other ingredients and extract of cola nut. The cola nut is the fruit of the cola tree, natch, a genus of tree that is native to the tropical rainforests of Africa. The genus is cola with a C. Bradham called it Brad's drink. Luckily, he was better with chemistry than marketing. Bradham touted his drink as a health tonic that could aid in digestion, and that's where the name Pepsi comes from. It's widely believed that Bradham gave the drink the name Pepsi because it contained the digestive enzyme pepsin, but PepsiCo says that the name came from Bradham's belief that the drug could soothe an upset stomach, or dyspepsia. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? 
Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Soon, Pepsi-Cola had outgrown the drugstore where it was created and became a business of its own in 1903. Initially, as with all early soda, Pepsi was only available at restaurants and pharmacies. They would buy syrup from the manufacturer and add their own soda water to it. Only about a year later, Pepsi began to bottle their cola, and almost immediately it was a smash hit. My grandmother, I'm told, hugely preferred bottled soda to soda fountain because the ratio of syrup to soda water would always be right. At the diner counter, you never knew how close the soda jerk would get with it. Bonus fact that I'm sure you already know, but I feel like I have to include it. The name soda jerk comes from the way that the person dispensing the soda water had to jerk the handle back and forth. Now, bottled soda also made soda accessible for people of color who weren't allowed into white-owned soda fountains. Whether or not the companies knew that this would open up a whole new market for them, I cannot say. Back to Pepsi. In six short years, they had 240 bottling franchises in 24 states. Business boomed, though the company fell on hard times during World War I due to sugar rationing. The war years had been desperate, and sugar prices soared when the war ended, but Bradham didn't care. He was going to save his company no matter what. He purchased a large supply of sugar to ensure the company would have it, but he bought it at a very high price. A price high enough to free-throw the company into bankruptcy in 1923. The secret formula and the Pepsi trademark changed hands a few times in the next decade, including to another company that declared bankruptcy, though eventually people got the hang of it. While Bradham was mixing medicines, John Pemberton, a Confederate colonel who found himself addicted to morphine after being injured in battle, began a quest to find a less addictive drug. In 1885, at Pemberton's Eagle Drug and Chemist House in Columbus, Georgia, he registered Pemberton's French Wine Coca Nerve Tonic. Okay, there is a lot to unpack from that name. Pemberton's French Wine Coca Nerve Tonic. Pemberton was trying to replicate and probably improve on Vin Mariani, a French Corsican wine with coca extract in it. 
Vin Mariani had been created in 1863 by a Parisian chemist, and it sold like mad, especially in the artistic and literary sets. Jules Verne, Alexander Dumas, and Arthur Conan Doyle were big fans, as was, try to guess, I dare you, you won't, the chief rabbi of France, who says, praise be to Mariani's wine. And no less than the Pope himself was said to carry a flask of it at times. Pemberton did Vin Mariani one better by adding cola nut extract, a.k.a. caffeine. He claimed his Coca-Cola had all manner of medicinal benefits, like a most wonderful invigorator of sexual organs. There was really nothing it couldn't help with if you believed the label. As Pemberton's business started to take off, his county went dry, meaning they passed a law prohibiting the sale of alcohol 34 years before such a law would go nationwide. Now, French wine coca nerve tonic was illegal. Because of the booze, not the cocaine. Just sit with that thought for a minute. Pemberton took this new law on the chin and rebranded the drink Coca-Cola, the temperance drink. If you can't beat them, at least get their money. It went on sale at Jacob's Pharmacy in Atlanta, Georgia, May 8, 1886, for five cents a glass. Pemberton claimed it could cure indigestion, nerve disorders, headaches, morphine addiction, and impotence. Two years later, there were three different versions of Coca-Cola being sold by three different companies. Pemberton himself, Pemberton and a partnership with four Atlanta businessmen, and Asa Candler, who claimed that he had had a verbal agreement with Pemberton for a stake in the company. Candler eventually got a legit one-third stake in Coca-Cola, but Pemberton's son, Charlie, got control of the name. My brainiacs are a sharp bunch, and I'm sure 90% of you already knew that there was cocaine in Coca-Cola. But how much was there? Without finding an immaculately preserved bottle of original, original Coke, it's impossible to say. Pemberton originally called for five ounces of coca leaves per gallon of syrup, or about 37 grams to the liter, which would be 80s trading floor caliber dose of cocaine, though Candler claimed his formula contained a tenth as much. Coca-Cola once contained an estimated 9 milligrams of cocaine per serving. For comparison, a line of cocaine is between 50 and 75 milligrams. So there was cocaine, but not a Keith Richards amount. The formula changed over time, such as changing from fresh leaves to leaves that had already had their active ingredient removed, and we do know that by 1902, there was as little as one four-hundredth of a grain of cocaine per ounce of syrup. By the time they removed the cocaine, there had been so little that most consumers probably didn't notice the difference. And bonus fact, modern Coke uses a cocaine-free coca leaf extract that they get from the only company in the United States licensed to purify cocaine for medical use. The push to remove hard drugs from patent medicines and soft drinks had a thorny element to it. The people pushing for the removal wanted to protect their communities from the drugs by way of their frightening middleman, colored people. Author Grace Elizabeth Hale explains, once soft drinks were offered in bottles, anyone with a nickel, black or white, could now drink the cocaine-infused beverage. Middle-class whites worried that soft drinks were contributing to what they saw as exploding cocaine use among African Americans. 
Southern newspapers reported that Negro cocaine fiends were raping white women and the police were powerless to stop them. By 1903, Asa Candler had bowed to white fears and a wave of anti-narcotic legislation, removing the cocaine and adding more sugar and caffeine. Now, no accounts surfaced in my research of white people being driven to criminal behavior by soda consumption, but if people realized the hypocrisy of that at the time, they'd probably explain it away in a fashion equally racist. Coca-Cola removed the coca 11 years before cocaine became illegal, during which time it was fire, as the kids say. People were going ham on it. Am I doing this right? Recreational use had quintupled in less than two decades. During that time, racially-oriented arguments about violence, sexual and otherwise, informed the discourse more than physical health concerns. The same vigor that was touted as a selling point for Vin Mariani was cocaine's indictment. Leaving behind the world of caramel-colored colas, let's talk about one soda that reps the original lemon-lime flavor, 7-Up. 7-Up began life with a much less catchy name, bib-label lithiated lemon-lime soda. It was created in 1929 by Charles Grigg, who could be described as a cereal soda inventor. In 1919, Grigg was working for a manufacturing company owned by Vess Jones when he created an orange-flavored drink he called Whistle. After a dispute with management, Grigg left, but Whistle stayed behind since it was owned by Vess Jones. Grigg then went to work for the Warner Jenkinson Company, where he invented his second soft drink called Howdy. Howdy was supposedly the third best-selling soda worldwide for a time. This time, when Grigg and his employer split, he took the soda with him. Together with financier Edmund Ridgway, Grigg went on to form the Howdy Company. But Grigg's orange-flavored soda couldn't compete with the behemoth that was Orange Crush, so he decided to switch flavors. Eventually, we got bib-label lithiated lemon-lime soda, which would become 7-Up a few years later. Why the name change? What does it mean? No one knows, but many people like to speculate. Here's the most persuasive explanation, that the seven refers to the seven original ingredients, water, sugar, citric acid, lithium citrate, sodium citrate, and essences of lemon and lime, which you have to group together as one ingredient. This seems to be supported by an early slogan, seven natural flavors blended into a savory, flavory drink with a real wallop. Other alternate histories include Griggs saw a cattle brand that looked like 7-Up, Griggs was playing craps and praying for a 7, the original bottle held 7 ounces, that lithium has an atomic number of 7, which it does, 7-Up contains 7 letters if you spell it out, and my personal favorite, it doesn't mean anything at all, that Griggs just came up with something punchier than bib-label lithiated lemon-lime soda. Even if it lands poorly on the ear, we do know what the original name meant. The soda was referred to as lithiated because it contained the mood-altering drug lithium, lithium citrate specifically. Griggs's concoction hit crowded store shelves just two weeks before the 1929 stock market crash that helped to precipitate the Great Depression, but it still managed to sell well, which I am more than happy to guess was due to the effects of lithium on stressed and depressed customers. 
Though lithium was taken out of the name in 1936, it wasn't taken out of the soda until 1948, when the government banned its use in soft drinks. But what is lithium? Is lithium the drug the same as lithium the batteries? That doesn't matter as much as the story of how it was determined to be a treatment for bipolar disorder, what we used to call manic depressive illness, which affects about 1 in 100 people worldwide. It puts sufferers through a relentless cycle of emotional highs and lows, mania and depression. Suicide rates for untreated people with bipolar disorder can be 10 to 20 times greater than the general population. Though fortunately, lithium therapy can help to bring that back down to the average. During the Second World War, Australian psychiatrist John Cade was captive in the notorious Japanese prisoner of war camp Shinji in Singapore for more than three years. During that time, he observed a link between certain food deficiencies, a major issue in a POW camp, and disease among the other captives. For example, a lack of B vitamins caused beriberi and pellagra, which is why most cereal-based goods that you buy are fortified with niacin. Cade survived the camp, which you probably guessed or I wouldn't be talking about him, and continued his investigations. Working in a disused room in the Bandura Repatriation Mental Hospital near Melbourne, he began to collect urine samples from people with depression, mania, and schizophrenia. He wanted to know if there was some secretion, some marker in their urine that correlated to their symptoms. Cade had little in the way of sophisticated equipment, even by 1940s standards, and was treading uncharted scientific waters, so he did what he could where he was with what he had. He injected the urine samples into the abdominal cavities of guinea pigs, raising the dose until the guinea pig died. Cade found that the urine of people with mania was the most lethal. In further experiments, Cade found that lithium carbonate, derived from the light silvery metal lithium and used for decades to treat gout and other conditions, markedly reduced the toxicity of the patient's urine. When Cade gave the lithium carbonate to the guinea pigs directly, rather than by way of a urethra, the guinea pigs calmed down rather than scratching and fussing in their cages. Suspecting lithium could have a similar effect on humans, Cade did my favorite thing a scientist can do, which fans of the show and readers of the Your Brain on Facts book, which could really use some more Amazon reviews if you have a minute. My favorite thing scientists do he tested it on himself to work out the safe dose. And he must have used good methodology because, as we know now, but he couldn't have known then, a therapeutic dose of lithium is between 0.6 and 1.2 microequivalents to the liter. A toxic dose starts at 1.5 microequivalent to the liter, so the butter zone between doing nothing and killing you is very narrow. Cade began administering lithium to 10 people with mania, many of whom had been in and out of the Bandura hospital for years. In September 1949, he reported fast and dramatic improvement in all of them to the Medical Journal of Australia. The lithium made such a dramatic difference that half of the patients were able to go home to their families and resume their lives. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back to Dr. Pepper. Their people were friendly with Texas's state food commissioner, J.S. Abbott, who helped draft a bill to ban the use of caffeine in all sodas. 
State representatives accused the Dr. Pepper company of actually writing the bill themselves, since they stood to gain from it. If every other soda maker had to change their formula, that would cost them sales, and surely some of those dissatisfied customers would try Dr. Pepper instead. Dr. Pepper defended their surely noble intentions with a vitriolic, collusion-denying ad in the Austin Daily Statesman. The law actually passed, and Dr. Pepper leaned even harder into their cocaine and caffeine-free formula for about four years before they added caffeine to stay competitive. Remember, you can always find the sources and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. And remember, if you need any voice work for your company, nonprofit, whatever you've got going on, I'm doing voiceover work for free right now to build up my voice actor portfolio. So just drop me an email, moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com.